0: Despite what beautiful, glossy social media and advertisers would have us believe, making it through life's challenges is not summed up in five easy steps. And we don't find peace in the storms of life from a handbag, face cream, or the latest sneakers. Life is challenging. And sometimes life is stage four metastatic cancer challenging. So how do we make it through all that life throws at us? Hi, I'm Jane Chalon, and I have had the privilege, honor, and blessing of working with cancer patients since 2011 as the palliative care chaplain at Yale New Haven Hospital. As I have listened to patients over the years process their living, dying, healing, and not healing, I have been struck again and again by the profound spiritual insights and resilience that have surfaced in our meetings, and I've often thought that these incredible nuggets of truth should not be for my ears alone, but instead should be offered to the world. Now I know that cancer patients often hear that they are an inspiration, they're so brave and so strong. And for most patients, this is the last thing they wanna hear as they're crawling into bed exhausted after just a walk around the block. But I also know that you do not need to be a published best-selling author You do not need an alphabet of degrees after your name. You do not need a fancy job title or a million followers on Instagram to have a profound, unique, and important perspective on life and how to survive, and even how to thrive in the midst of it all. The patients, caregivers, and clinicians that you will hear from have been through it all, supported it all, and seen it all. The stories, interviews, and voices you will hear in this podcast will change you. They've changed me, and I have watched as they've changed others. So get ready to laugh, cry, and be moved to a deeper place. Get ready to find a way forward. Welcome to In the Midst of It All. I am really delighted to welcome Jayante Mukherjee. When I first met Jayante just a couple of months ago, um, I was immediately struck by her centeredness and awareness. Um, And as I got to know her better, I learned about her incredible courage and strength as well. Jayante has a beautiful Hindu faith that has carried her through her life and her cancer journey. And every time I meet with Jayanti, we find ourselves running out of time or going over time. Um, because Jayanti is just such an incredible conversation partner and truly insightful about all that goes um, with cancer and cancer treatment and um, care, the impact it has on caregivers as well. I always learn something new and gain a different perspective on something when we meet and when we talk, Jayanti. And I know um, that you who are listening or watching will also gain so much, um, not only by listening to Jayante's story, um, but also um, her reflections and insights and wisdom along the way. It is really my great pleasure to welcome Jayante Mukherjee to the program. Jayante, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Jane. It's been a pleasure to interact with you through these uh, last couple of months. It's been just wonderful. Yeah. I think you bring out things in people. You, you think <laughs> that you're getting things from me, but I'm getting things from you. <laughs> it, goes, it
0: goes both ways. It goes both ways. <laughs> we yeah. both learn so much from each yeah, other. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. yeah. yeah yeah, so um, I thought today we could begin just by kind of learning more about who you are, Jayante, and um you know where you were born and and your move to the states in particular, but also your incredible work and family. Um,
1: yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I you know, I was born in Kolkata in India. um. Uh, People know Kolkata mostly as Calcutta but the current name is Kolkata and that is Bengali for Calcutta so mm-hmm. it's very appropriate mm-hmm. um, I at the age of 20 I moved to Canada to study mm-hmm. and uh, this was a huge move because I was an only child I'd never really gone that far um, Uh, you know any of my trips and this was a really long trip 10,000 miles away Mm. to a country where I knew nobody and uh, um, in a climate that I was not used to Um, lots of snow very cold weather and I was still wearing my sharis to work even though I did wear coats and stuff but I was still wearing sharis to work And the, um, you know, it was a bit of a struggle at first, of course, because it's an adjustment, not only to the climate, to the food, which I didn't like at all. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, there were a lot of adjustments. Mm. But the most important one I wanted to talk to you about was when I first met my professor. Mm. So he basically um, knew that I had a background in chemistry. I was interested in doing a PhD in chemistry. He told me that you know I could do a PhD in chemistry, but he really would like me to do a PhD in statistics. Hmm. I thought it was preposterous. Like, where <laughs> did that come from? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I didn't. I had never taken any courses in statistics. I knew nothing about statistics. Ah. So I said, how is this possible? I mean, a PhD in, in a subject which you know nothing about? Really? He said, you can do anything you set your mind to. Hmm. He said, you can do it. I don't know about that. So I went back to my residence and thought a bit about this and I'm thinking, what is it that he expects of me?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, and so I stayed in the chemistry department for another year him a year to convince me that this was a good move and he explained to me and to my father because my father was very uh, agitated about this move yeah. He explained to me and my father that in the future biostatistics would be a discipline that would be so big mm. that it is a good uh, place to start because um, many universities at the time did not have a department of biostatistics. And of course, with the explosion of medical research, you know that biostatistics is very important these days. So he saw this trend, and he wanted me to try to make this move. Uh, except that it's it comes at a big cost because I came from such a long ways. I can't just go back home. Yeah. if I don't take this offer what do I do, what, is my, what are my choices, you know, things like that. So I had to think through all that. Mm. But I thought, okay, I'm willing to try. Uh, but I said to him that I want to do it the right way, which means that I'm getting back to undergraduate. So it means you do second year, third year, fourth year uh, mathematics. You know, not just statistics, but all of the stuff that supports it. You know, oh
0: my gosh.
1: and uh, and so I took 22 courses.
0: Oh my gosh, you went I, back and and kind of redid, exactly redid. Wow. And then I did my
1: thesis and uh, got my PhD in statistics. And that was an act of faith because when I started, uh, people said about my confidence. What well, confidence? Confidence based on no evidence. I mean, how do I know that even I could do mathematics that well? Mm. So it is it is really faith because if you don't have that strength or that faith in yourself, um, then it's very difficult to do that. So I think our experiences shape us. Yes. And then these experiences come um, to help you at times of need. Mm, mm-hmm. so, so I thought this was important to mention. Yes. Um, so after I finished my PhD, I went into academia. I was at McMaster University and I worked on a surgical stroke prevention study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So it was a very good experience for me. And then after that, I went into pharma industry worked in several different companies and ending up at Bristol Myers Squibb. So the last 21 years of my career was spent at Bristol Myers Squibb. And I have presented at uh, many conferences and published. And uh, so I have 100 um, peer-reviewed presentations and papers to my credit. And I've obviously enjoyed that whole, um, you know, the whole, all, all my time working, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I just cannot say enough about how wonderful it was to be given um, mm. those experiences. Um, and then I retired at the end of
0: 2018.
1: Mm. And a um, few months after, my life changed. Mm. But before that, I wanted to mention that I am a a wife, a mother of two sons, grandmother of three children, um, two of them girls, one boy. And that gives me tremendous joy. Um, So working was fun, but (laughs) having family and people to spoil is (laughs) even more fun. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and my two sons are um, separated by 13 years. So um, yeah, so that is interesting because my older son is married, has children, my younger son is not. So yeah, and uh, it's really interesting um, to see the relationship of my younger son to his uh, nieces and nephew. It's a Mm -hmm. wonderful relationship. So I think that's what I'm most grateful for is, the family
0: that I have yeah yeah they keep you going I mean I'm just struck too as as you as you share your story you know having talked with you how much of it does has impacted also now you know through the cancer journey the exactly. courage of moving the um you know jumping into a new field yeah. and um the work that you've done and and you know the um just the, the intellect that you have and, and wisdom um, and also how much your, your family has been um, so supportive and so with you through oh, it all. Oh, it's,
1: a, it's been absolutely amazing mm-hmm. what level of support I've received from my family, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, when I go into the next phase, like post-retirement, um, I was thinking, oh, this is great. Now I don't have all these meetings to attend. And, you know, I have all this time and I can do whatever I wish. I can travel, you know. And when I went for my mammogram uh, um, on March 13, 2019, I was not worried. I was not worried. I hadn't thought of cancer I should have, because uh, I hadn't had any mammograms for more than 25 years. So Mm -hmm. that is not a good thing. I should not have done that. I was so worried about false positives and things like that. Um, But it is not a good thing to do, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then I went uh, for my mammogram and it was taking so long. I thought, boy, what is going on? Are there technical glitches that, you know, the pictures are just not turning out right? What right. is going on? And then I realized that, no, there's something not quite right about this. And I went to the waiting room and the radiologist came and sat next to me. He spoke Bengali, by the way. And yes, uh, yes, yes, that's true. Yes. And he, he said to me, um, he asked me a bunch of questions. And then he said to me, I think you should see an oncologist. Um, if you don't, it's the, you know, the, the outcomes would be very bad. Yes. So that made me realize that, wow, we're not dealing with, <laughs> you know, picture glitches, but rather, uh, you know, something more serious. Um, so then I talked to my primary care physician, and uh, she said that I have to go see uh, an oncologist at Yale, at, at Yale Smilo. And I said, Oh, can I just wait another six months and then maybe do it? And she couldn't understand where it was coming from. She said, Absolutely not. <laughs> you have to go now. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I went and saw Dr. Park, a um, mm-hmm. surgical oncologist. And she wanted to do a punch biopsy of the skin of my left breast um, because it had turned red and it had this color, um, sort of like a texture that resembles orange peel. Mm. And um, so I I, um, didn't quite understand all of what was going on. That day was a big bit of blur because they were telling me so much stuff I couldn't absorb it It was like I was overwhelmed and I had spent a whole career in medical research and right. I felt overwhelmed so uh, I mean, yes. when it's happening to you you know it's not the same at all and right. my younger son was there and he actually remembered a lot more than I did Thank, thankfully um, so my advice is, you know, always go with somebody when you are going for such a, a such an appointment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and awesome. yeah.
0: Can I, can I ask you sure. to like, to share more about kind of the overwhelm and what was mm-hmm. going through your mind in that moment? Cause as you said before, you know, you went into retirement and then your life changed, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so it was this moment, right? Where you're sitting yeah. and you're all of this, where your life changed, what, what was going through your head in the overwhelm?
1: Yeah, so uh, the one, uh, the, one of the big things that was going through my head was, you know, I've heard breast cancer, you have mastectomy. So I started to think, well, I have to go through surgery. Uh, yes. You know, what sort of treatments will they give me? Uh, I, at, at this meeting, I hadn't thought as much about all the side effects yet. But my older son, as soon as he heard it, he said, oh, my God, this is going to be such a terrible, you know, he, he felt terrible. He said, uh, your yes. quality of life is going to go down like yes. you've never seen before. And I didn't know why he was reacting this strongly, because I hadn't yet started anything, not, not started treatment or anything. But yeah. he had his reasons. And I thought to myself, um, you know, I was trying to put myself in the shoes of a cancer patient. I don't think I had quite uh, thought of everything, but it was just too many things were going through my head, and I couldn't focus really. And any, you know, I, normally I have I have good focus. I ask the right questions, and here I couldn't focus. I was just uh, my mind was going everywhere, and uh, yeah. And I think the other thing is that it was a shock. You know, you have to understand that I didn't expect to be diagnosed. That's the thing, Yeah. 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 So it was a shock because, and I kept saying to my family members, but there's nobody in my family who has breast cancer. And then somebody said, well, you do have an aunt who has ovarian cancer. And, you know, then you start to think, oh, maybe there are people who, but at first I was like, why is this happening even? And I think that's the other thing we should be careful about, is that breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. So uh, it's, um, you know, it's, it came as a shock to me, but,
0: you know, it shouldn't have, right? So, yeah. yeah. Right, but, right. Yeah. But it does. I mean, I think you know. I always say to folks, if we if we ran to the to the emergency room or to the doctor for everything that could be cancer, yes, exactly, <laughs> we doing every week because you know, exactly. it, it's just so so <laughs> so yeah. that we, we have to kind of say, oh no, it's not cancer. It's, it can't yeah. be that. It must be a common cold or a little pain. Yeah. I bumped yeah. myself or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's you know that's yeah. usually the case. But so yeah. it's absolutely a shock when you yeah it, it is. yeah huge yeah. thoughts just there's so many things like you so said. many things are going through your head and you're
1: just not able to concentrate or focus you know right, right. the one other interesting thing is that dr silver um i you know when i met her that was the next oncologist i met medical oncologist and um she said to me um, the significance of the skin biopsy and the punch biopsy of the skin um, she said that the it's good that it came back negative uh, mm-hmm. because for breast cancer reconstruction, the skin is important and the skin would have to be all taken off so mm-hmm. and uh, you know so I mean these things <laughs> hadn't even occurred to me.
0: Right. <laughs> Right, it's yeah. so much information. It's so much to process emotionally. Exactly. There's exactly. also the information yeah. of how to do it. So your son, yeah. your younger son, who is with you, was really instrumental in being a part. Sure. Of yes. Yes. Other things, but yeah. but notes and. And I hear that from so many patients, too, that having a caregiver who can sit there and listen, they can hear other things that maybe you didn't hear and you hear things that they didn't hear. Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people don't realize that, um, um, you know, having somebody there provides you emotional support, of course, but it can also be helpful in other ways. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's important to take somebody with you um the the I think you had wanted me to talk a little bit about the changes in diagnosis, like how sort of it went up and down like a roller coaster, well, yeah. yeah
0: and yeah, we were yeah. kind of prepping beforehand and saying, yeah. you know that there it, so many patients experience that roller coaster, yeah. Um, yeah. yours in particular was unique yeah, um, yeah. yeah so so yeah. Share, yeah, a little bit yeah. about. So, okay, so yeah.
1: exactly. So, in the beginning, when Dr. Silver was talking to us, she mentioned the word um, cure, um, we're looking for a cure or curable or something. The word cure came up exactly how she used it, I don't remember, but the word cure came up. And uh, so at that point, she said it's a, a locally advanced cancer, meaning it has it there's some in the breast, but there's also some under the arms. So it has gone into a lymph node, which means it's locally advanced. So she made it sound like it wasn't too bad, you know, locally advanced cancer. Yes, of course, I'd still have to be treated and all that. But, and she had a good uh, regimen for me, you know, the combination of Taxol, Perceptin and Progetta. And I knew that that combination was a good combination. I had read the research and stuff, so I knew that was uh, that, that was the right combination. but along the way, it became clear that she was not using those words anymore. Mm. like the cure part had sort of disappeared. Mm. and what had happened in uh, you know um, shortly after all the uh, the mammogram, biopsy, and all those things, um, they did a CAT scan. Mm. And the, just after the CAT scan, I got a call from Dr. Zhang. She was a, a fellow working with uh, Dr. Silver. And she had tried to send me email, text, uh, phone, everything, all within like a few hours. Wow. And so I did know what was going on like I didn't didn't understand and finally I got to talk to her and she says we saw the CAT scan lighted up in the chest area you know like uh, mediastinal hyalur lymph nodes and also the neck area like the supraclavicular lymph node so she basically said to me that we're very concerned because this cancer is no longer considered to be locally advanced but metastatic if that's, if those are actually tumors. So, um, so I was sent for a PET scan and the same thing happened in the PET scan. And at that point, they basically said that I had stage four breast cancer. Mm. So from, you know, sort of locally advanced, I had gone all the way to uh, metastatic.
0: Yeah. And what at, time yeah. frame was that? What was the time frame of that? Uh,
1: the time frame was uh, like, like within a couple of weeks, I would say. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. 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 Within a couple of weeks, it had gone to that level. Yeah. And uh, at that point, they said that um, the, the, you know, the regiment that I was uh, put on or was going to be taking was still the appropriate regiment. Uh, they started with a very high dose of Tapsol uh, because they you know, wanted it to be aggressive. And I couldn't tolerate it. My um, white blood cells started to fall and everything. So they had to bring the dose down. But other than that adjustment, they were able to continue the that combination till the end of August. So from May, early May to end of August, that combination uh, you know, was given to me. But then it was starting to produce um, uh, some side effects that were not not good at all. Like
0: mm-hmm.
1: I was losing my vision, so that was not good. Yeah, so, yeah, so I went to see uh, my um, ophthalmologist and she, he's a retina specialist. So he said to me that the blood vessels in my retina are uh, leaking. And uh, so I think it is a form of um, uh, retinopathy maybe or you know, something. Like that. But anyway, he did treat me and it eventually got better. Um, but I said to Dr. Silbert that I don't want to take any more Tapsol because it was um, also making uh, my peripheral neuropathy had shown up by then. And it was getting worse too. So I said, between the retinopathy and the neuropathy, uh, I couldn't deal with all of these things all happening at the same time. And, uh, you know, it was affecting my mobility. So um, Dr. Silper said, you know, many people end up in wheelchairs. So I said, you know, know, I can understand that, but on the same token, (laughs) I don't want to go through this. uh, this sort of treatment, yeah,
0: yeah, and just to to pause for a minute for for folks who might not know about peripheral neuropathy, mm-hmm. can you share a little bit about the symptoms, like what how how that manifested for you? Because it's it's a big it's a it's a very difficult side effect. Yeah, it's a
1: very difficult side effect. Um, it uh, produces a, you know a, sort of a zapping feeling in your in your in your feet because. It's like electric current going through, you know, and it's kind of does this all the time. It's not like, uh, oh well, it comes once in a while. No, it's it's fairly regular, you know. And uh, the other thing is that there are par- parts of the feet which are numb, but then there's this heightened sensitivity and other parts, and that's not uh, good because you've got balance issues now because you're not really um uh, you know putting your feet down properly on the on the ground you know you you have these you know um areas of numbness so so that's bad enough and then you have got this um terrible pain and this pain keeps you from sleeping lately can't sleep when you have that much pain in your feet so I remember I used to get up our and you know every hour and I would use cold packs you know on my feet and stuff to help at least a little bit didn't quite help that much I mean it gave some uh, little bit of relief but it wasn't that that much uh, what should I do like what is it that I can do for myself uh, in terms of peripheral neuropathy and um, so I did um, seek out help at that point but to come back to the story of the um, chemotherapy,
0: yeah. um,
1: Dr. Silver um, wanted to try um, uh, another treatment uh, called TDM1 or Cetuxa, and I had read some, uh, you know, some papers on on TDM1, and they seemed it seemed like a very good drug. Most people didn't have any problems with neuropathy or anything uh there was a small percentage that discontinued for neuropathy but it wasn't a, a you know big percentage so i thought okay I, i'll have a treatment that you know works and is mm. tolerable well not so uh, gdm1 made it even worse i mean i was now mm. having so many problems um, you know not just uh, you know eating i'm uh, sorry sleeping but also eating i basically uh, didn't want to eat at all and I was losing weight at an alarming rate. Um, I uh, had some problems, abdominal problems and stuff. I just couldn't tolerate TDM1 and the neuropathy got worse. it got worse and uh, so at this point, I was really going through a very dark period, you know in terms of w- what's my next, you know, uh, where, where am I going? What's what's next, you know? And uh, um, Dr. Silber listened to me and I said to her, can I just go off chemotherapy altogether and just have the targeted therapies like Perceptin Progetic, but not Tapsol, TDM1, any of these. And she agreed and she put me on Letrozole, which is an oral chemotherapy and Perceptin Progetic. And I was very happy about that change because it was so much more tolerable. And, but my husband was not. He felt sad. He said that basically you're giving up on your cancer treatment, you know. And I said, no, I'm not giving up. I'm just making sure that I can still keep taking it. And he said that uh, Dr. Silver is an expert, an oncologist, and you're telling her what you should be treated with. And I said, yes, but it's my body and I know what I can tolerate. And so, you know, it's a, my first time when I really became an advocate for myself and said, I can't do this. I have to, you know, ask for a change. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And that was a real turning point for you as well to be mm-hmm. able to advocate for yourself and, um, you know, really you know, say, this is, this is what what I can tolerate Mm
1: -hmm. right
0: now, and I can't do those other things. And I know you've also talked about um, kind of having cancer be, well, cancer care and treatment be sort of a job. And, um, you know, when you got connected with palliative care in the midst of all this, Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: also learning to advocate for yourself as a member of the team.
1: Right, yes.
0: You're not just kind of over here and there's a team that's working. You're actually a part of that team. And advocating for yourself is critical, actually. What you did in saying, this is what I can tolerate, this is what I can't tolerate, was important to your care and treatment.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that one of the things that I um, felt was at the time um, Dr. Silber suggested I go uh, to see Leslie Black and uh, palliative care. That right. was True. huge because when I arrived at her office, I was a wreck. I was trying to be strong, but I was not feeling good at all. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, can I maybe take marijuana or something? Because, you know, it might help me with my appetite and sleep or, you know, things like that. Um, whatever, you know, anything that can help I was looking yes. for. And uh, she basically put me first on gabapentin, And then uh, when gabapentin doses had to be kept on, you know, the, she had to keep on increasing the doses. She said, okay, we'll switch you to Lyrica. And I have been on Lyrica since then. It's really, it has really helped me. I think Lyrica calms the brain down. Like even though the pain's not all gone, yeah. But somehow Lyrica has that effect on the brain mm. and it made it all so much more tolerable. Yeah, I could do more, you know, like mm. instead of just lying in bed and feeling terrible. Um, and I was able to uh, sort of feel a bit more joy that, you know, mm. it was all going downhill. And now I could, <laughs> you know, yeah.
0: Yeah, so, that's uh, incredible. Yeah. That's incredible, yeah, yeah. and so that was really the treatment that helped with your neuropathy, the peripheral right. neuropathy. Right, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, so I, many, yeah. I did so also many, do other stuff, but that's, was that was very important. Right, yeah. right, yeah. And so many people will think of, oh, palliative care is end of life. But yes. We'll always yes. try to explain. Actually, palliative care can help you yes. get the treatment you need exactly to do better. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Gosh, what a what yeah. a statement too that. Yeah. it, that yeah. palliative care gave you your joy back yeah yeah i heard that from folks it gave me my life yeah. back and but- life
1: back exactly i felt like a human being again you know like not a, just a cancer patient it was like a bit feeling like a human being yeah so right
0: right yeah. and and i imagine you being a part of your team being heard and mm-hmm. taken seriously and then mm-hmm. also having your pain and symptoms managed better. Right,
1: right. right. You were not yeah. just
0: patient. You were yeah. a team member. Yeah, I was, was
1: a team careful. member. Leslie really listened to me. She's a very good listener. She listened to me. And I think that was very important at the time because your emotional um, well-being is just as important. You know, I mean, people focus on the physical, but the physical and the emotional are all tied together. So, yeah right right yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly it was very important yeah yeah. It, yeah so so at this point um i was trying to just manage you know my life as best as i could right but then dr silver um said the uh, the pet scan at the end of 2019 the end of 2019 uh was not very encouraging. So she kept me on the same treatment, but she was still very concerned that how come these other lesions were not improving. And then in June of 2020, she said to me, I don't know, something doesn't make any sense. Like none of these treatments are working. These um, lymph nodes are increasing in size and Uh, I don't know what's going on. So she was thinking of putting me on a more aggressive treatment. Um, She had mentioned some of the drugs and I was like, no, I don't want those drugs. (laughs) And uh, I knew a bit about one of them. And I said, oh, no, no, I don't want that. And but she was like, no, but if you have to control this, what do you do, right? I felt really worried at that time. And so I um, started to pray. To my mother and uh, to her uh, guru, a spiritual teacher and the and it was mainly because I had I was like thinking, what should I do? You know, you know where, where do I turn to? And I turned to um, uh, you know to my mother, who uh, you know life had looked after me well, and now I was thinking, well. I know she is on the th- other side, but, m- you know, maybe she will hear my par- prayers and,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, uh, yeah. And, and did you
0: feel some comfort from that and some exactly. guidance? Exactly. Prayers yeah. help
1: you calm your anxiety, makes you feel like, okay, it's not, you know, things can get better, you know, I'm not saying that I knew things would get better. but I felt like things could get better, you know, yeah, and right, uh, right. that kind of, sort of brings your anxiety down. And then um, Dr. Silver said, we're going to do a biopsy of the uh, supraclavicular lymph node and see what's going on there. And when he did that, it was discovered that wasn't cancer, that I had sarcoidosis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sarcoidosis does make sense because I have a Condition called ubiitis, which is very strongly linked to sarcoidosis. They're both autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really totally, um, you know, a crazy diagnosis. It was a a very important diagnosis. And at that point, Dr. Silver said, you've got some of your life back.
0: Yeah, Yeah. right. So this time, then that means (laughs) that if it's not tumor spread, um yeah, it's sarcoidosis. It goes yeah. from stage four now. Yeah, the roller coaster, right? right. From stage four now
1: back to a lot, lot lesser stage. I'm not sure exactly stage. what you call that stage, but yeah, it's it was true or to, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was yeah. now back to a, a much uh, lower stage, and that was right. meant meant the world to me. Uh, because yeah so then uh, after that then uh, Dr. Silver said okay now I'm going to pass you back to Dr. Park and she can now take care of you because you know she's the surgeon and she recommended uh, a modified radical mastectomy and uh, removal of 20 lymph nodes under my arm and that was the surgery I had And after that surgery, they discovered that I was uh, what they call pathological complete response. I think there is a name for it, PCR or something, p, capital C, capital R. And that was huge. I was cancer free. So I had gone through this roller coaster. And by October of 2020, I found out uh, that I was cancer free. Wow. So,
0: right. yeah. so you were hit with this this um, diagnosis initially out of the blue, not right. experiencing the shock that comes for most patients, right? You know, then you were given this diagnosis that it that it's metastatic; it's the end yeah. of your life, and you had to sit with that and lots of treatment yeah. for about, about a year. Yes, and yes. I, I got some suddenly very- cured. Yeah. yeah, suddenly cured. Yeah. Gosh, that very must have been such a, um, a mental roller coaster for you and your family. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I
1: should share more yeah. about
0: that the mental. Yeah, I should coaster.
1: mention something there. That actually is a very good um, uh, thing to talk about. So, one of the things I remember when I was going through this very dark period something yes. I did not share with my family, because I didn't think they, it, you know, I, I didn't feel comfortable sharing this. But the five years survival rate of people who have uh, four cancer is 20%. So, uh, and some people don't survive five years, they survive maybe two years or three years at the most, you know, so I kind of knew this, but I didn't want to really talk about this because, you know, would have had a very, um, you know, uh, you know, my family would have been very sad and upset. So I thought, you know, um, I read about things because I I have this thing about reading. And so I read papers and things, but I keep things, you know, sometimes to myself because Not everybody is, um, (laughs) you know, wants that much information. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but uh, what I felt uh, at this point, uh, after, um, you know, having gone through all the side effects, also what was bothering me was that it's not just a question of survival, but what kind of survival? I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, the last few years of life would be terrible. So, and I started to think about those type of things and, uh, you know, So when I was told I was cancer-free, it was like, wow! I went from sort of these dark thoughts to, oh, now I can do stuff. Now I can get back
0: to my life, you know. Yeah, Yeah. you have a a future to think about. When suddenly I think, when when you have the that terminal diagnosis, you know, and it's or metastatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it it inevitably, folks will talk about how um, suddenly the the future disappears. It's, it's yes. like it's gone. Yes. And, yes. And, then, and then to have yes. it come back and <laughs> come back.
1: That's it. That's it.
0: Yeah, yeah. and it it's was also, like you were also really kind of yeah. holding a lot on your own as well. Yeah. Through this yeah. And how yeah. how yeah. very brave the outlook looked for so long
1: yeah yeah and that's a good point what you said your future just seems to disappear before your eyes and you are only left with um you know i mean I, I i should mention that at this point um somewhere i i forget exactly from when to when but there were more than 200 appointments right and so like i had said to you before that i consider it to be a job because Right. Um, if you think of um, you know going to work every day you know you know starting your work day and this was like that it was like I had to get ready go to uh, you Smilo, know, go through you know whatever I had appointments for but what was even worse was I had now co-opted my family into it my husband my son mm-hmm. and uh, you know um, I mean it's It's hard on them, too. you know, they had to put their life on hold, you know, so, yeah,
0: yeah. So can you share a little bit because more about how the the cancer, your cancer journey and this roller coaster impacted them? because I do think you have such great insight into how this impacts not only the patient, you, but those around you and all right. those you go through as well. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, they couldn't make any plans. Like they, you know, they could have um, gone to places that they would have liked to go, but uh, it was hard to make plans because I needed a lot of help because I, I, with my neuropathy and things, I had limited mobility, which meant that uh, you know I couldn't drive, for example, or anything. Um, you know, I had uh, I had to depend on them. You know, my husband also. Uh, cooked uh meals for me and I, I i had so many problems with taste and stuff right. that he didn't know what to do with it like one day i'd said okay that tastes good and next day i said oh that tastes really bad um you know and i was kind of relying on sort of a few uh things that i could still eat you know that, yeah. It, it was and you know I like spicy food I couldn't eat that because I had mouth sores I you know the whole process of eating and I used to spend uh you know time thinking oh no I have to eat now geez I don't yes. like, really like the thought even of eating so it's just um, it's hard and you know the person who is looking after you that person is doing the best they can and yet you are like I don't know. That's uh, that doesn't taste good. And so what? Now he has to make another meal. You know, yes. um, yeah. So that was very, uh, I think, hard on everybody um, because you know, the their life basically became more like looking after me. You know, and uh,
0: yes. yeah.
1: So it's, no, it's, it's
0: right. Yeah. I, I think you have such um, compassion too for. Your particularly your son who who lives with you mm-hmm. and, husband, and mm-hmm. how much they had to reorient mm-hmm. their lives around all that you were going through. And it's um it is, it's a big it's a big task for many caregivers mm-hmm. to add on to their lives already. Mm-hmm. And then I know you've also talked about too the emotional support from your son and and daughter in law and family live mm-hmm. in New York City. They may not have been mm-hmm. close by, but particularly they they also provided. Oh, a- yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: My my grandchildren <clears throat>
1: provided me with um, you know uh, a respite from all my um, woes and you know troubles that I was going through. And I remember Dr. Silver saying to me that that's the best uh, thing that can happen is they come and stay with you. And they did that, that 2019, they stayed for a while with me, uh, Mm -hmm. with us. And uh, Dr. Silver said, you know, they are um, inherently selfish at that age and it's good for you. Mm -hmm. And I said, it is, (laughs) it was really good for me because they were doing the things, they were happy, they were playing, they were, you know, and that's what I wanted to see. I didn't want them to, you know, Um, (laughs) feel the weight of everything and they were you know young enough that they actually you know they were um, okay Uh, whereas their parents were not so okay and uh, my son was really quite sad about everything and uh, but you know they came to visit and like I remember 2019 Thanksgiving they were all here Mm -hmm. which was nice. I mean, I couldn't enjoy it that much, but at least they were here, you know, so they came Mm -hmm. and everybody was, um, you know, at the dinner table. And, uh, you know, that had a good feeling for me that they were still here, they were enjoying the dinner. I may not be able to, but they are here. Yeah. So yeah. 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 So when you talk about compassion, I feel like one of the things that people don't understand uh, that well is is how caregivers at um, at like Yale Smilo felt, you know, uh, because I felt the the warmth, mm-hmm. you know, and i I could see that the you know the team, they were um, not only providing me with high level professional care. Which they're very good at, of course, and that goes without saying. But there was a certain level of empathy that I felt, and I think that's very important. A smile here, uh, a question question there, um, you know, maybe you could try this; it might make you feel better. You know, uh, all this kind of thing uh, is very helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yes. well, and, and honoring you as. Mm-hmm. Again, as a member of the team,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I think is so important. And knowing, you know, from from our perspective as clinicians, mm-hmm. knowing that you are a part of the team, you are mm-hmm. mentoring mm-hmm. really yes. honoring yes. you as as is who you are, not yes. just illness. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All of who you are, and mm-hmm. and then I think that you know helps us have compassion and empathy.
1: Yeah I I think uh, I think it's it's a two-way street that's true I you know I have to at least show uh, empathy towards them uh you know and uh, they on on the other hand they were also showing empathy to me so yeah it's it's yes. a two-way street um, the other thing I wanted to mention was, yes. you know, when after the surgery, when I had to go for radiation, because I mean, initially I was like, why do I have to have radiation? I'm cancer free. No, cancer can return. So <laughs> you have to have the radiation. So I went to see Dr. Knowlton and Dr. Knowlton told me that I have to have six weeks of um, radiation Monday to Friday every week. Mm mm-hmm. And I went home and I said, you know, do I have to have six weeks? And then I read the paper and it said, you could get away with three weeks if you have no reconstruction, you know, after surgery. So I said to Dr. Knowlton, why can't I have three weeks? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it says that. So she looked into it and she said, you're right. And she had spoken to the European oncologist, radiation oncologist, And they had told her that the U.S. has the guidance for six weeks, but in Europe, they have changed over to three weeks. So and so I thought, you know what, that's good. That's a good thing I asked. And that was another uh, way I advocated for myself. (laughs) (laughs) And I ended up with three weeks and, uh, you know, because I didn't have any reconstruction. And if you have reconstruction now, the, the guidelines are different. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's still six weeks. But um, uh, so that was another time and Dr. Knowlton was very nice about it. She kind of listened to me. I, she said to me when she first met me and she was talking to me about, you know, the radiation side effects, I kind of zeroed in on lymphedema. And mm-hmm. she said, um, why did you, it? I noticed you, it. I said, yes. And I said, I can't afford another um, side effect like that. With the neuropathy, I've had enough. Yes. If I have lymphedema on top of it, I would not be able to do anything. So yeah. I'm like, no, no, I don't want this <laughs>
0: And can you describe, you know, from your research, what you discovered about what lymphedema could be and what it is?
1: Yeah, because the, 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 the <laughs> lymph doesn't flow properly. So the arm just keeps on increasing in size. And then it would happen in my left side, of course, because that's where my left breast was removed. And, you know, surgery itself can cause some of that when you take off so many lymph nodes and stuff, but then the radiation can make that even more so. And, then when the arm gets so big, it can't function, of course. And then without arm, I mean, you have problems with your feet. So some of the thing this uh, is depending on your arms. And, and now if your arm doesn't work, I yeah. was like, wow, what am I going to do? Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. I have yeah. thought this through. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, that's good. And then you advocated for for avoiding that then is that exactly yeah. yeah 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 and I did one more
1: thing I went to physical therapy so I used to go to physical therapy to help with my neuropathy because you know I needed to have more strength in my, my lower body to make sure that I don't fall and things like that but I also had um, the therapist worked on my uh, left arm shoulder and all that Uh, because of the surgery, he wanted to make sure that that, you know, didn't become kind of um, painful and stiff and things like that. So I think that also helps, you know, Mm -hmm. because he was actually doing um, kind of therapy off the um, arm and the shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm just um, thinking of, you know, of, of folks who might be listening and thinking, gosh, you know, did this wonderful advocacy for herself. I'd like to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. How, are there some steps that you would kind of share with folks about how to become a, a, a good advocate for yourself and work with your team?
1: Yeah, so I felt that um, there is a fear of um, talking sometimes to people who are, you know, uh, obviously have um, medical degrees, have got a tremendous um, uh, you know experience and you know the, these are people who you're talking to so sometimes we tend to shrink back a bit thinking I'm not sure I should be saying all this too but I think the way I look at it is that the only person who can know exactly what you're going through is yourself you know yeah. yes uh, you know studies can help tell you which side effects are more common and things like that but that doesn't help on an individual basis Mm -hmm. individual can still feel something that maybe other people didn't feel quite as badly or didn't have it so it is important to raise it respectfully of course because it's not like oh wow it's you know my way or the highway um -hmm. but you know raise the issue and see what the response is and you know sometimes when you Um, talk in a proper manner to the caregivers they sometimes will actually agree with you even so then maybe something has to be done you know Mm -hmm. and yeah so so I feel that that chance you have to take because if you feel that that's important to you you have to do that you have to take that chance yeah
0: right Right. And I, and I would imagine too, some, some might listen to you and say, oh gosh, well, you, you have a PhD and you know about medicine and things. And so I think it's, I think that your answer is really, really helpful, all the more helpful because um, it's not about in a way your is a little bit, you know, your ability to do the research and understand the statistics, but it's, but as you're answering it's it's really more about sharing what you as an individual are experiencing.
1: Exactly. exactly. That's
0: what you're an yes. expert on. That, that is the right
1: way to put it, because this isn't about giving it a name or giving it a, no, just ex, to ex, uh, explain what you are going through
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: and how it's affecting you. I mean, uh, some side effects are less uh, impactful, others are much more impactful. So it's important to uh, ex, uh, explain how it's impacting you, and in, and how it's impacting your family maybe too, because it could be broader than just you, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, uh, so that that's how I feel, uh, you know. And I, I mean, I may have done research and stuff, but I don't know much about oncology because I never worked in oncology. So, right. um, yeah. So I think it's. Uh, it's not necessary. It's only about yourself and what you're experiencing. Yeah.
0: Right, right. Yes. Right. And and even if you kind of didn't really know about lymphedema or those kinds yes. of things, yes. just sharing your goals too. Exactly. I exactly. want to be able to, yes. to move. Yes. I want to be yes. able to do the surgery. Could it impact yes. my mobility? Could it impact yes. exactly. you know, other things? And, yes. and um, can you help me understand that more? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Functional right. goals, I think, is the way um, you should look at it too. Like, you know, obviously, you want to feel better and all that, but functional goals are important. Like the ability to maybe go and walk in a park, or you know, those should be just as important. You know, right,
0: yeah. right, and that that actually, you know, helped as well to get you connected to palliative care, and yeah. Yeah. As you said get your joy back, which I love that. Yeah. That's a yeah. so wonderful way of putting it. Yeah. Um, uh, but there are things out there that people may not know of that can really give a lot of relief. And so uh, I think, yes, absolutely. Advocating for yourself is so important. And, and you are such a good example too, of how, um, and you know, of course you had wonderful doctors, Dr. Silver, um, that your, your clinicians around you received your, your advocacy, um, mm-hmm. fashion. Yeah. And- of you know taken aback by it or
1: yeah yeah the last time I saw Dr. Silver wasn't that long ago and uh, um, she was so happy for me because she asked me about my son my grandchildren you know all that you know and uh, my husband yeah and that's the thing I mean she felt happy and I think that's the way another way to look at it is that when a doctor can make a difference in your life it makes it it makes a difference in their lives too
0: (laughs) right yeah Yeah, exactly yeah yeah Yeah, so I know that you're you're kind of interested too as you as you came to advocate for yourself you're um, now interested in advocating for others and for other patients I wonder if you want to share a little bit about that and how that's been? Yeah,
1: so um, I thought I would start at a more local level, like, you know, um, helping people like, uh, you know, uh, maybe at Yale Smilo, or, you know, um, uh, what I had in mind was uh, being open to people um, uh, contacting me, uh, you know, how exactly that Obviously I haven't thought through, but it would be good that if they wanted to contact me, talk to me, I'd be happy to talk to them. Um, you know, I feel that uh, people should reach out to their own family and friends, but sometimes they may need to reach out to another cancer patient, you know I mean, we are, whether we're current cancer patients, uh, you know prior cancer patients, you know, uh, you know, survivors, whatever survivorship, Yeah, we should be able to connect with each other. And I found out that um, I saw something um, on the internet. Uh, This woman, she belongs to a group in NHS, which is in the UK, the National Health Service. And uh, so they have a a group that does advocacy. And this woman talks about how cancer patients like talking to other cancer patients, they, uh, you know, breast cancer patients especially, they um, uh, they uh, can share more honestly, more you know, um, uh, freely. You know uh, what they're going through, and I think that's what I was hoping that I could provide is that person can be uh, as open and free as they want to be. Um, yes. And the, the other thing that I thought of is that national level advocacy is important too, of course, because you can improve access to care, you can improve, um, you know, policy decisions that can help lots of people. Um, but I don't know that part, how I would go about it. So I, I at this time, I'm just thinking more local.
0: Learning. But I, yeah.
1: yeah, but I did find something that I wanted to share with you. So it was the National Breast Cancer Coalition. Okay. And they're having a, um, for advocacy, they're having a meeting in Washington next year, 2023, in early May. Um, and this is all about breast cancer advocacy. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I might um, think about going there and thinking great. about it. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's great. Yeah. It is yeah. so important to find those communities. And I think yeah. that's why we're doing these interviews, too, is, yeah. is, as you said, there's nothing like hearing from someone else who's been there, yeah. who's been through it. You know, as you talked about the neuropathy and the change in taste and, you know. The impact on your on your husband as he prepares food and deciding about the um, mastectomy and all Mm. of these things, you know, I think um, when people are are going through it on their own, it it all seems so kind of abstract. Yes, able to hear from someone like you who's been through it, and now Mm. here you're in a place of survivorship. Um, Exactly, all of that after all that you've been through. yeah you were able to make it through and uh, yes. and and survive and um and thrive really
1: yeah and thank I'll, you
0: i'll go and help others so it's it's really yeah. an inspiration yeah. yeah well
1: one of the reasons i also wanted to write about it was um you know it helped me to process things too because that's when you write about something you have to revisit things and yeah. so really helped me process what i've been through in the last few years and and i thought if i can share this with others then maybe i can also help others yeah so right yeah,
0: yeah. so so for folks who are watching the the um they can read your story um yeah. through Milo Cancer Hospital um, publications and website um, for more of your, your insight and wisdom. Um, I'm finding myself again, you know, looking at the clock thinking how on <laughs> earth has it been? <laughs> I thought this was going to happen. There's so many more things to, to talk to you about. You're, you're, um, oh my gosh, there's so many more things I could, I could talk with you about. And so if folks do want to, you know, reach out to you, it sounds like you're kind of, you know, to some extent available. For, and, for, yes, and sure, yes, yeah. Yes, and, and there's yes. a story as well, um, published and I'm sure we'll yes. hear more from you, um, yes. in the you world, is there anything else that you'd like to share, you know, kind of words of, of wisdom or, or things that you found really that helped me along the way. And, and you'd like to impart, you know, as sort of parting words,
1: Yeah, the the final thing I would say is that it's really important to um, keep in touch with, uh, you know, friends and family through this um, journey. Uh, Sometimes people want to uh, kind of curl up, you know, um, and stay to themselves, but I think that's not going to help because when you um, see the emotional um, support you can get, from others uh that is kind of what you need you really need that you know i I mean there were times when i didn't feel maybe like talking as much but i realized that the more i actually shared i felt better as well as others could help me more so yeah so that would be my final thing is to reach out and and keep uh, connected to um you know family and friends and you know um even if they are far from you you know like yeah maybe in different countries even but it's really important yeah
0: yeah it's so important i hear that from almost every everybody i talk to Mm -hmm. it's so important to stay connected and that you know even if you know, I know there are some families that that aren't you know supportive or understanding, and there's mm-hmm. always there's always support out there too. There's
1: you it's know mm-hmm.
0: um, there's all these wonderful advocacy groups. There's Facebook right. groups. There's yeah. Yeah. Um, lots of people who you yeah. know come out of the woodwork too. <laughs> yeah, and, and gosh, I didn't really know that person, and now all of a sudden, yeah, exactly, that
1: can happen so. too. And, and one other. The last point I would make is that you can also seek professional help, like therapists, which I did too. And uh, that also was very helpful. Um, It's hard to uh, sometimes understand why you're feeling what you're feeling, a sense of panic or whatever. Uh, They can explain it to you. They can explain. They can say, we know about this experience from others. We know that that can happen. And then you start to feel better because okay, other people have gone through this. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. If
0: you, if you can't connect to other patients, yes, yeah, that yeah. is true. We, we can say, oh, I've seen other patients go through this, and you're not alone. Exactly. You're not alone. Yeah, you're okay. not alone. Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. That's uh, it. You're not alone. That's the best way to end this thing
0: you're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> well, gosh, thank you so much, Shanti, you. for your you. time and your insight. And I know, I know there's so many people that you've touched today with your, um, this interview alone. So thank you for, for that.
1: You're welcome. You're very welcome. Um, I. I considered it a a, a real treat to be able to do this. You know, it's uh, such a wonderful feeling. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you all to those who joined us. And please continue to to stay tuned for more interviews from us um, at Spirituality Through Our Struggle and Yale Cancer Hospital. This episode of In the Midst of It All was made possible by the generous support of the Yale Cancer Center, Yale New Haven Hospital, the Yale Palliative Care Program, and the Yale New Haven Department of Spiritual Care. Huge gratitude for Rodney Staggers, a man with cerebral palsy who helped birth this idea and has been a huge creative motivator. Thank you to Ellen Hoverkamp, an artist with metastatic lung cancer, who created the artwork for our podcast. You can find her artwork at myneighborsgarden.com. A big shout out to Emily Montemerlo, who, among other things, helps edit the stories you have heard and who just is a lovely support in every way. And Ryan McAvoy, who helps record and edit the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit that subscribe button and tell your friends. It would mean so much to us and to all our podcast guests if you would leave a review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We would love to hear how this podcast has helped you. Okay, friends, we will post our next story and interview soon. But in the meantime, check out more stories on the Yale New Haven Hospital Yale Cancer Center website. This is In the Midst of It All with me, Chaplain Jane.